the word of God where it says, and when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who, speak, who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up from the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and on signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Exalted 
to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God, had ma- God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them, And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Before we uh, get into the, uh, the passage, I just wanted to uh, draw your attention again to the ministry training conference which is coming up this coming Saturday. Um, uh, if you're involved in, uh, in any ministries in the church, uh, like music, children's ministry, youth ministry, uh, sound, eldership, um, small groups, welcoming and greeting, uh, evangelism, if you're involved in any of those things, there will be workshops uh, on all those topics this coming Saturday. Um, we've gone to quite a lot of work to, to put this on this coming Saturday to help you in the ministries that you're doing so if you are in any of those please come along to that Uh, even if you can only make it for the one hour session that your uh, your ministry area is uh, is running Uh, or if you're interested in being in any of those ministry areas then uh, then come along to that you can register for that uh, on uh, the vision 100 website let's uh, let's pray Lord God and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that uh, you poured out your spirit on the, uh, the church on the day of Pentecost uh, 2,000 years ago. And uh, Father, we ask that as we come to your word now, uh, that you would pour out your spirit on us also, that, uh, that we would hear your words and believe them uh, and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, uh, it's a complete fluke, actually, that uh, I'm preaching on uh, Pentecost on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Pentecost was a Jewish feast 50 days after the Passover, uh, and Jesus was kind of crucified at the time, around the time of the Passover. So this is the, this is the Sunday that it's roughly 50 days after Easter, basically. Uh, and it's a complete fluke, as I said, that uh, we happen to be looking at that passage in Acts today. Well, or it's God's providence, one or the other, but, uh, you know, the Bible uses the word fluke in Ruth, in Ruth as well, so that's okay. But uh, Acts is a, is a book full of, uh, of firsts. Uh, it, uh, it records the first meeting of the church, the first church meeting, the first example of distinctly Christian persecution, uh, the first miraculous escape from prison by a gospel worker, the first recorded Christian martyr, 
killed for refusing to deny Jesus. But here in Acts chapter 2, the passage that we're looking at this morning, we have the first major outpouring uh, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament uh, and now coming uh, come about through Jesus Christ. We have the first major outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the first gospel sermon. And we want to think this morning about uh, what those things uh, have to say to us uh, and about the church in our day and age. Well, last week we saw that Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit to equip his disciples to be his witnesses. Uh, And now in chapter 2, what Jesus had promised to his disciples actually comes to pass. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. The disciples were all together uh, on this festival of Pentecost, uh, 50 days after the Passover, and the gathering there was probably not limited just to the 12 disciples, but to the 120 or so followers of Jesus who were mentioned in the first chapter. They were all there together, waiting expectantly, and all of a sudden this violent wind fills the house and these tongues of uh, fire come down and rest on the people there. And the result of all that kind of amazing visual uh, is that the disciples are able to speak in other languages, in other tongues. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Because Pentecost was an important Jewish feast, it was one of the key feasts uh, in the Old Testament, because of that, uh, there were Jews from all over the Roman Empire gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, If you saw the handout last week, there's actually a map on the front uh, of all the places where the the people had come from to gather on the day of Pentecost. Uh, They were people from, uh, we're told in verse 9, there were Parthians, Medes and Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. In other words, there were people from all over the known world who'd gathered in Jerusalem. And because of this miraculous gift of speech given to the disciples, each of those people with their own languages each of those people could understand what was being said. The purpose of this gift of tongues, this gift of being able to speak languages that they didn't otherwise know, the purpose of this gift, please notice, was evangelistic. The Spirit comes on the disciples in power and they speak in other languages which they couldn't otherwise speak and the reason is so that people can hear the gospel. Peter says that this miracle is a fulfilment, in fact, of the Old Testament, a prophecy from the book of Joel, uh, which he quotes in verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's 
not immediately obvious, I don't think, how that prophecy, prophecy is being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Joel mentions visions and dreams and prophecy and wonders in the sky, but in Acts what we have is loud noises, tongues of fire and miraculous speech. But Peter says that the prophecy is being fulfilled in his ministry and in the ministry of the other apostles on that very day. So what's going on? What's going on is that Joel is reflecting on the nature of prophecy from an Old Testament perspective. So in Revelation 19, we're told that the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is, what's the main point of prophecy? The main point is witness to Jesus, testimony to Jesus. The key message of uh, prophecy is the the message of the gospel. And in the Old Testament, that came through dreams and visions uh, to people like the prophet Joel. It came through dreams and visions uh, because Jesus had not yet come and Jesus had not yet fully been revealed. But now that Jesus has come, we don't need dreams and visions to reveal the gospel. We don't bear witness to our dreams and visions as the prophets did. Instead, we bear witness to Jesus, to what Jesus has done in history. You see that in Peter's gospel sermon. He isn't giving any new information. He has no new revelation from God that he's received in a vision or a dream that he is now expounding on the day of Pentecost. Rather, what he's doing is is proclaiming the fulfilment of all those dreams and visions of the prophets in the Old Testament. Peter is really just repeating what Jesus said last week. That is, the key reason that the Holy Spirit comes on his people, on his disciples, is in order that we can be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's not primarily so that we can have special insights into the future. In fact, it's, in one sense, it's rather small-minded, tragically small-minded, I think, That some Christians think that God's great power comes to us in the Holy Spirit so that we can know what the future will be. So that we can know what job someone will have or what will happen to Auntie Jo or whoever it is. It's tragic that they think that rather than realising that God's great power has come to us in the Holy Spirit, not so that we can know the future, but so that we can proclaim the gospel so that we can proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ to a perishing world. Now, the great miracle here on the day of Pentecost is not a supernatural message, although the message actually is supernatural, received from the Son of God himself come in in the flesh. Rather, the great miracle is how God enables and empowers his people to proclaim the message in a way that crosses barriers and even crosses the barriers of language. One of the great barriers to effective mission is still language. When missionaries go out, uh, they often need to learn new languages and they spend countless hours doing that. So Graham and Linda have spent time trying to learn Juba Arabic. Quentin and Ashley uh, need to learn new languages too. And many of our Korean friends who uh, have gone out 
from us and have gone out into the mission field have needed to learn new languages and are still trying to learn new languages. Well, what a great prayer it is to pray for them that God would help them to learn those languages. That God would give them the ability to speak the gospel in a language not their own. I don't know that we can expect that God will always answer that prayer in the incredible way that he did it at Pentecost. I've no doubt that God can still answer that prayer miraculously. But at Pentecost, God was kick-starting a new gospel work. There was no time for the apostles to learn all those languages before that day to speak to all those people groups. More often, God expects us to work through the ordinary means. More often, God himself works through the ordinary means of our life to achieve his ends. So God uses the slow grind of language learning to teach us to speak those languages. And in fact, God uses the slow grind of language learning to teach us other lessons as well, like patience and perseverance. The process can't always be short-circuited, and it's not always in our best interest for it to be short-circuited either. But God can still give greater ability, greater opportunities, greater opportunities to learn, greater fluency, and we ought to pray that God would do that for those missionary friends and and brothers and sisters that we have throughout the world. But it's also a great prayer, I think, to pray that God would enable us to learn other languages. We have numerous people in our church from other countries, even from England, uh, and it would be a great prayer to pray that we could speak that language too. But lots of, <laughs> lots of languages, uh, there are people who speak lots of different languages in our church community, and language is a barrier, isn't it? in terms of our communication with each other. And it's a great prayer to pray that actually God would help us to communicate the gospel more and more effectively to each other. And if that means us going out of our way to learn other people's languages, then that's a great thing to pray for. And what about all the people coming to our country who speak other languages? People coming to our country uh, from Muslim countries uh, all over the world who need to hear the gospel. What a great prayer that God would teach us those languages, help us to learn those languages so that when we come into contact with them, we'd be able to communicate the gospel more effectively to them. Or what a great prayer to pray that God would enable us to speak the gospel in a way that overcomes other barriers, not just the barriers of language. What about the barriers of culture? You see, Jesus promised the Spirit to his disciples to begin a new age of gospel proclamation. And at Pentecost, Jesus did exactly that. He poured out his Spirit to enable the proclamation of the gospel. And we ought to pray that God would use us through his Spirit to proclaim the gospel as well. Well, the Spirit empowers the disciples for gospel witness. And then Peter goes on to preach the gospel. Well, what is the gospel that he preaches? First, Peter proves that God has appointed Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ. So Christ literally means anointed. Uh, it's the Greek version of the Old Testament word, uh, the, the, of the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's anointed king or, or God's saviour. 
Lord can mean uh, something like king and master as well, but it's also the term that the Jews use to refer to God himself. And here in Acts chapter 2, that seems to be what Peter has in mind. Uh, God has made Jesus both Lord, uh, revealed him to be both Lord, that is God, and Christ, that is Saviour. Peter proves that uh, fact with four pieces of evidence. So first he says, the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus did show who he is. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. The incredible miracles that Jesus did in his life on earth testified that he was God. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He made the lame walk. He raised the dead. He calmed the stormy sea. Second, Peter says Jesus fulfills the scripture. And he quotes in verse 27 from a psalm in the Old Testament where David says, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. David was speaking as God's anointed king in the the Old Testament, but David himself died and was buried. He's not at God's right hand. His body is decaying in the ground. Yet David knew that God would, had promised that he would appoint one of David's descendants as king forever. And Jesus is that descendant of David. How do we know that? We know that because Jesus' body is not dead in the ground, that his body is not decaying, but that Jesus is at God's right hand. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate king appointed by God to rule over God's people and God's world. And his resurrection... Fulfilling the Old Testament is a testimony to that fact. So first, Jesus' signs and uh, wonders testify to who he is. Second, the fact that he fulfills scripture proves that he is uh, Lord and Christ. Third, the apostles themselves witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact They saw him alive, not just the 12 disciples, but the 12 disciples and 500 other people saw him alive. And it was a fact that they could testify to. In fact, it was something they were willing to die for. They were so convinced of their testimony, they were willing to go to to death for it. Fourth, Peter says, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit also demonstrates who Jesus is. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The events of the day of Pentecost themselves are evidence that Jesus is Lord and Christ. The visible manifestations, the wind, the tongues of flame, the spirit-empowered gospel preaching, the fulfilment of the prophecy of Joel, all those things must mean that Jesus is really who God says he is. Well, that evidence was enough to convince the three or 3,000 of the people gathered there that Jesus really was Lord and Christ. But here's the problem. The Jesus who is both God and Saviour is the very same Jesus that those people have put to death. Peter says to the crowd, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
It's a great slap in the face, isn't it? He's saying, you see, he really is the Christ, but you crucified him. You put him to death. And Peter's words strike at the very heart of our human predicament. That is, God has shown us who he is and we reject him. God has sent his own son to us to save us, to rescue us from sin and death and judgment. But the very Jesus that God has sent is the very Jesus that we reject. Later on, we'll sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And in that song, there are these words where it says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We weren't actually there. None of us was there on the day that Jesus was crucified. But the sentiment is this, that all of us in some way have rejected Jesus. All of us in some way are responsible for his death. It was our sin that held him there. And if we had have been there, we would have been scoffing and mocking as well. In some way, all of us have lived a life which at times mocks Jesus, denies Jesus. Just think of Peter. On the night before Jesus was crucified, denying Jesus, calling down curses on himself rather than being identified as one of Jesus' disciples. You might never have said, well, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you. But many of us, like Peter, have said, well, I don't want to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. It was my sin that held him there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking, denying voice call out among the scoffers. It's the great tragedy of sin that God has gone to such great lengths to save us in Jesus and we refuse to receive the very saviour that God sends. It's the perfect example of biting the hand that feeds you. Well, if that's you, rejecting and scoffing and mocking Jesus, then please realise that the Jesus that you are rejecting is Lord and Christ. There is no other saviour. And one day you will stand before Jesus, the Jesus you have rejected, to be judged by him. This Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Well, Jesus sends the Spirit to equip his disciples to preach the gospel and that's what Peter does, he preaches the gospel. And Peter's spirit-empowered preaching has its effect. The people are cut to the heart and they ask that famous question, what shall we do? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What shall they do? Repent and be baptised. Repent, to repent means to change direction, to turn away from one thing and to turn to something else. These people had put 
Jesus to death and they needed to turn away from following sin to following and trusting Jesus. The other side of repentance is baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, these people needed to publicly identify with Christ and with the new gospel age of the promised spirit which had begun in Jesus Christ. It's interesting uh, that here alone in Acts, the command is to repent and be baptised. That that doesn't happen anywhere else in Acts. Repentance, uh, in, in other places, people are simply told... Uh, to uh, to repent and turn back to God, or uh, repentance is linked with prayer for forgiveness. Sometimes it's just there on its own. Uh, sometimes repentance is linked with living a life, uh, keeping with that change of uh, with that change of direction. So, in other places in Acts, repentance is linked with other things besides baptism. So why here on the day of Pentecost is baptism so emphasised? Well, we need to realise that the people gathered on the day of Pentecost, uh, we're told uh, by Luke, were converts to Judaism or Jews. And it's important to realise that within the Old Testament there were mechanisms for repentance There were mechanisms for turning back to God. So in the Old Testament, people are always being called on to turn back to God, right? I mean, that's what all the prophets say to the people. Turn back to God. Stop doing what you're doing and turn back to God. But what was happening on the day of Pentecost was different. Yes, they needed to do what they'd always been called upon in the Old Testament to do, repent and turn back to God. But now they needed to also recognise that the means of doing that was now through Jesus Christ himself. At Pentecost, a new gospel age had begun and those Old Testament believers needed to shift their faith explicitly to Jesus Christ himself. They couldn't just keep on being a faithful Jew practicing daily the sacrifices and offerings that they needed to do, the rituals and the, the, whatever it else it was that they needed to do. No, they needed to shift their faith to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who had finally come. And baptism was a sign of just that. Baptism was important because it was an indication that irrespective of their Jewishness, the faith that they were embracing, the faith that they were being taught, the faith that they were being discipled in was faith in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah who had finally come. All of that is really just a very long-hand way of saying it is not baptism per se that matters. That wasn't Peter's point. What really matters is repentance and trust in Jesus And baptism is the sign that the faith that the person is embracing, the faith that the person is being taught, the faith that the person is being discipled in is not the Old Testament faith, but faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah who's finally come. Whoever you are then, you need to repent. You need to turn from sin to Jesus. You need to turn from whatever it is that you're clinging on to that holds you back from Christ 
and you need to put your trust in Jesus himself. And if you haven't been baptised in the name of Jesus to symbolise the faith that, you're, that you are embracing as a Christian faith, then you need to be baptised as well. If you've been baptised in the past and you've only just realised that you've come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that happens all the time. It happened all the time in the Old Testament too, that people have been born into the community of faith and it was only later in life that they realised that what it was to, to repent and trust in God. And some people uh, repent and trust in God as adults and are baptised and then later on realise that no, they hadn't repented and trusted in Christ before and that now they only have, have just now. You don't need to be baptised again. You just need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. These people had killed the Messiah that God had sent to save them and they want to know how they can be right with God again. And Peter says, repent and trust in Jesus. Please notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, it's too late. I really wish there was something that we could do, but you've gone too far and there's no way back from this. Peter doesn't say that. He says, you've killed the Saviour, the Son of God. Repent and trust in the Saviour that you killed. He can save you. Well, you might think that there's no way back to God from where you are. You might think that your life is too far gone. But think on this. What's worse than putting the Son of God to death? If you can come back from that, you can come back from anything. Peter says, if that's you, repent and believe in Jesus and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit which God has promised and which he poured out for the first time on the day of Pentecost. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that on that day, thousands of years ago, you began the second act of your great new gospel work. The great gospel work that you began right after Adam and Eve fell into sin. A great gospel work that you worked out all through the Old Testament in shadows and forms in rituals and sacrifices. A great gospel work that reached its pinnacle when you sent your son as one of us into our world to take on our sin, to die on the cross in our place, to rise from the dead. a great gospel work which you continue now through the Holy Spirit whom Jesus has poured out on his church, on all those who put their trust in him. And Father, we ask that you would enable each one of us to trust in Jesus Christ. 
that no matter how far we've run from him, no matter how much we've mocked him, no matter how much we've scorned him, that his death can cover all our sins and restore us to you. Lord, help us to believe that. And having believed, fill us with your spirit, we pray, that we might proclaim that same gospel to others as well. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.